Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer, the Humboldt lycanthrope. And I'm Sarah Hartman. And this is Murder Coaster. Right this way, right this way, right into one of your worst nightmares. A killer with no motive besides blistering rage and their own urge to die themselves. A raging madman with multiple weapons and a sack of ammunition who fires indiscriminately, murdering men, women, children, the elderly, even infants. Gather your wits, keep your hands inside the vehicle. For today, we're going back to 1984 to bring you the tale of the worst mass shooting in the history of California. An eruption of violence that left 23 dead and 19 injured. Yes, today we bring you the sad and pathetic life of mass shooter James Huberty in the San Cedro McDonald's Massacre. The 1970s saw an epidemic of random homicides, many committed by sexually sadistic men purely for pleasure, which brought about the term serial killer, usually attributed to FBI special agent Robert Ressler. It was a new term, serial killer, and for many, a new concept that struck a deep fear in the heart of society and dominated the news. From Juan Corona to John Wayne Gacy, Dean Coral, and Ted Bundy. But as the 70s became the 80s, a different breed of killer began to emerge. The mass shooter. The terms mass shooter or mass shooting actually have no set definitions like other crime terms such as serial killer. Some see it as any instance in which a number of people are shot, not always fatally, and include gang violence and domestic instances. But for our purposes today, we're going to define a mass shooting as an act of public firearm violence in which a shooter kills at least four victims. And we're not going to include gang killings, domestic violence, or terrorist acts sponsored by an organization. Yeah, this is what we're talking about today. We're not talking about gangs or terrorism. We're talking about terrifying lone shooters who lose their minds and go on a rampage. There's a slang term for it called going postal because of the spate of work rage gun violence from postal workers. The term is often frowned on especially by the U.S. Postal Service itself. But it is worth noting that since 1983, 35 people have been killed in 11 post office shootings. Yeah, the, uh, the uh, notorious David Berkowitz, the son of Sam killer, he was a postal worker, but uh, his crimes definitely put him in the serial killer category. Today in America, mass shootings are unfortunately common, but they didn't used to be. Looking at it decade by decade is extremely revealing. In the 1950s, there were only two mass shootings in the United States. And in the 60s, there were six. 
in the 70s, 12, and also 12 in the 80s. But the 1990s saw 23 of them, a crazy decade when school shootings became a thing. In the 2000s, the number of mass shootings actually went down a tad to 20. And 2002 was a year without a single one, which hasn't happened in 20 years. But in the 2010s, the number tripled to 66. And now in the 2020s, which we're only three years in at this time of this recording, we've already seen 26. That's more than the 70s and 80s combined in just three years. If you choose to include gang violence and domestic incidents in the definition of mass shooting, as well as instances where less than four died, the numbers are astronomical. By April 17th, 2023, this year, there had been 146 mass shootings in the United States alone. Yes, there were more mass shootings than days in the year, halfway through April. But today, we're going to focus on the most deadly mass shooting in California history, the 1984 San Cedro McDonald's Massacre, which was committed by James Huberty. So let's get into it. James Oliver Huberty was born in Canton, Ohio on October 11th, 1942. At only three years old, he contracted polio and suffered from crooked knees and mild spastic paralysis that occasionally caused numbness throughout his body. His father, Earl, states, quote, his whole nervous system was hurt. It screwed him up. It made changes in him when he was little. His father also claims the debilitating disease made him quick-tempered. When James was only seven years old, his father bought a farm in the Amish country of Pennsylvania, but his mother, Isol, refused to move there. Instead, she heeded a religious calling to become a missionary and began preaching on the sidewalks for a Southern Baptist organization. By 1950, Isol and Earl were divorced. James was deeply affected by the loss of his mother. According to David Lombardi, pastor of the Trinity Gospel Temple in Canton. He blamed God for taking his mother away from him. Bertha Eegman, who lived down the road from the Huberty farmhouse, recalls that Jimmy was a loner, not a bad boy, but someone who spent most of his time by himself. He just did not want to mix. He didn't want to talk to people, she says. Those guns were about the only thing he liked. He was always a shooting guy, said Alte Miller, an Amish farmer who lived in the Huberty farmhouse after they left. He had a truck patch garden across the road for a while, and he'd shoot five heads of cabbage and pick just one. At night, he'd run out of the house and just go shooting in the woods. He was said by all to always be very sad and very lonely. His only close friend was his dog, Shep. Because of his physical ailments, he had to wear braces on his legs and couldn't play sports like the other children. He struggled to fit in anywhere. After his parents' divorce, his father married a young schoolteacher with children of her own, and James was said to be openly hostile towards her. He didn't get along with her. 
said a neighbor who asked not to be identified. When he came home, he'd get out of his car and fire off 10 or 12 shots to warn them he was coming in. Despite his physical challenges and social issues, James made the most of the opportunities that the prosperous post-World War II era presented. He enrolled at Malone College, a small humanities school in Ohio, where he met his future wife, Etna. He graduated with a bachelor's degree in sociology, then began training to obtain a state license as an embalmer and a funeral director. Another embalmer, Reverend Dennis Dean, noted while Huberty was mostly very reserved, he had a vast knowledge of firearms, adding he was preoccupied with weapons and the things which various calibers could do to the human body. In 1965, James and Edna were married at the Trinity Gospel Temple. The ceremony was performed by Pastor Lombardi, who knew both the families well. Lombardi says of James, With him, he always felt a little uneasy about the way he harbored something inside. He was pent up. He had real inner conflicts, and he had a kind of an explosive personality. When you talked to him, you knew he had nervous anxiety and was wound up inside. In 1971, James and Etna moved into a large red brick house in a middle-class section of Massillon, Ohio, and set to decorating and furnishing it. Soon, the couple had two daughters, Zelia and Cassandra. The concept of a good and happy home life was extremely important to Huberty. He was determined to form the perfect family. After being devastated by his parents' divorce, and his father remarrying, as if he being a good husband and father could provide him with all the happiness that had been missing in his childhood. And he severed nearly all ties with his father. His father Earl said he was only allowed to see his granddaughters twice in the years ahead. While Huberty had received a license from the Pittsburgh Institute of Mortuary Science in 1965, he had eschewed a career in the funeral business, and instead, he took a job as a welder at the Babcock and Wilcox utility plant in nearby Canton. Don Williams, the owner of the funeral home where Huberty served his apprenticeship, says he, quote, told him he was in the wrong business. He was a good embalmer, but just didn't relate to people. That's why he became a better welder. He could just pull that mask down and be by himself. And, you know, who would have thought that uh, being an embalmer was a job that required people skills? Right? I never would have considered that. (laughs) As a welder for Babcock and Wilcox, James reportedly earned between $25,000 and $30,000 a year, and he was able to purchase an investment property, a six-unit apartment building, right next to their red brick house. He was living the American dream. James Alsalnes, a co-worker at B&W, became friends with Huberty, explaining, We first became friendly when he found out I was studying Kung Fu. He was inquiring about how to put his daughter into the program for some kind of self-defense. Aslanes was a gun enthusiast and noticed that Huberty's house was filled with guns. Shotguns, 
rifles, handguns, and an Israeli-made Uzi machine gun. But their common passion for firearms was stilted by a shooting incident. As Aslanes explains, we went shooting one time with the Uzi, and he began shooting at a rock. It was dangerous. The bullets might come back at us. It shocked me that anybody that knowledgeable about guns would do something like that. He also turned their basement into a gun range, shooting guns into all hours of the night down there. Yeah, neighbors love it when you do that. I'm sure they do. Aslanes also says that James would constantly talk about rapists and what should be done with them, saying, quote, they should have their fingers cut off. They should cut off their hands and tie them up by their testicles. Aslanes explains that Things like that frighten me. Yeah, it's, it's creepy on, on just multiple levels. But And uh, Mike Mauger, who owned a tavern across the street from Huberty's home, says, the only spark I got out of him was the time I asked him about his gun collection. Mauger said he sometimes saw Huberty peering out his open doorway holding a shotgun, going on to say, In the bar business, you tend to judge people quickly. My instant reaction was, He's strange and weird. James grew obsessed with conservative principles about the sanctity of private property and land ownership. He put up no trespassing signs and bought two German shepherds, raising them to be attack dogs and guard his land. He became obsessed with survivalism and began stockpiling ammunition and foodstuffs. And James would often fight with neighbors about dog-related events. Cindy Strait, who lived across the street, remembers how a stray dog once defecated on Huberty's front lawn, and he came after the dog, a poodle, with a gun, chasing it into the alley beside Cindy's house. James was readying to shoot the dog when Cindy's father confronted him, convincing him not to kill the animal. James acquiesced, but not before telling Cindy's father that if he ever stepped one foot on his property, he'd kill him. In 1971, the Huberty family house went up in a blaze of fire, and they relocated to nearby Canton. In the wreckage of the house fire, Missilian firefighters found the remnants of an extensive gun collection, including a submachine gun, a carbine, and a browning. In Canton... Huberty worked as a welder for the Union Metal Incorporated. James Huberty also became familiar to the Massillon Police Department. We had numerous calls involving them, a spokesman said. We got them from them complaining about noise and vandalism, and from the neighbors complaining about the attack dogs he raised. When calls came into the police station on minor matters, Sergeant Don Adams recalled, officers often joked that it was the Huberties again. At one point, a neighbor complained that one of James's dogs had somehow damaged their car. James promptly dragged the animal out and shot it in the head to prove that he took matters of personal property seriously. That's seriously, he shot his own dog in the head. Yeah, the poor dog. Mm. And surprise, there was frequent domestic violence as well. Etna once filling a report with the Canton Department of Children and Family Services that her husband had, quote unquote, messed up her jaw. 
Huberty was arrested in October 1980 after becoming involved in an argument at a gasoline station. According to police records, he was charged for refusing to quiet down. <laughs> refusing to quiet down. Uh, I didn't know there was a law against that. Now, I, I think it's some kind of a drunken disorderly thing, so I guess it makes sense. Often, in order to calm James down, Etna would give him tarot card readings, telling him the future looked great and they were going to be rich and happy. But James wasn't the only one with a violent temper. Etna, too, ran afoul of the law. At a birthday party for a neighbor's daughter, Etna instructed her daughter Zelia to physically assault one of the other girls. And after getting into an altercation with the girl's mother, Etna pulled a 9mm pistol on her. She ended up getting arrested on four counts of aggravated menacing. According to the police records, the Huberties routinely carried the pistol with them and in the car. By the early 80s, hard financial times had settled in the region, and the Babcock and Wilcox plant was forced to shut down. James lost his job on November 15th, 1982. And Etna tried to sell the properties. A real estate agent made a fraudulent purchasing agreement on the apartment house. Disillusioned and unemployed, according to Etna, James tried to kill himself. She says, he had this little silver gun in his hand. He always played with guns. He raised it to his head. I grabbed his arm. I pried his fingers off the gun. And I left the room to hide the gun. When I came back, he was sitting on the sofa, crying. Terry Kelly a former co-worker who was now a Stark County deputy sheriff, recalled that when Huberty lost his job, he said he had nothing to live for. And if this was the end of his family, he was going to take everyone with him, adding, he was always talking about shooting somebody. It seems to be with these uh, mass shooters, it's like this rage against society that's coupled with suicidal feelings. I think that's really what breeds this type of killer. It's maybe also worth noting that 98% of mass shooters are men. Psychologists have pointed out that society limits the ways in which young men are taught to cope with feelings of victimization. Men often have fewer resources and fewer social supports with which to deal with complex and difficult emotions. Things like rejection, grief, loss, or self-loathing. In June 2022, in reference to the prevalence of male mass shooters, Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at the University of Washington at Tacoma said, We teach boys and men that the only socially acceptable emotion to have is not to be vulnerable and sensitive, but to be tough and macho and aggressive. Combine this fear with the social stigma of a mental health diagnosis, and it becomes even less likely that these individuals will seek help. And we're going to see all of this come together in a perfect storm for James Huberty. A lack of resources, overwhelming emotions of rejection, suicidal thoughts, and the learned urge to be tough, macho, and aggressive, forming a tornado that would end up taking. 23 lives. 
Former colleague James Aslanes recalled that Huberty felt the country wasn't treating him right, that everything was being done against working people. He blamed his predicament on former President Jimmy Carter, the Trilateral Commission, high interest rates, and the Federal Reserve Board. His bad-mouthing of government institutions led some people to believe he was a communist, but his wife Etna disagreed, saying, quote, if anything, he was a Nazi. As 1983 went on, Huberty became increasingly frustrated and bitter. In September, he was involved in a motorcycle accident, and the injuries he received exacerbated the lingering pains of childhood polio and left him with a tremor in one hand. He began taking his frustrations out on his family. It seemed his cherished dream of a happy family life was going up in smoke. He felt he had to do something. And the idea of just taking off and uprooting began to dominate his thoughts. And he even wrote the Mexican government and applied for residence. In the autumn of 1983, James and Etna were still trying to work out deals to unload their properties. But James was becoming obsessed with the idea of moving to Southern California, where they can live in a temperate climate, reasonably, with no heating bills. Neighbors remember hearing that the Huberties wanted to try it out west. Then, suddenly, the family was gone, leaving the situation with their properties still unresolved. They also left behind all the foodstuffs they've been stockpiling, but they brought their guns and ammunition with them. James, Etna, and the children wound up below San Diego on the Mexican border, moving constantly from apartment block to apartment block, even living in Tijuana itself for a spell. Eventually, in January of 1984, they ended up at the Cottonwood Apartments in San Cedro. They were the only Anglo family there amid Spanish-speaking tenants. According to Etna, her husband, quote-unquote, did not fit into the Mexican community. He knew no Spanish. He felt lost, rejected, and hopeless in California. Etna asked him if he wanted to go back to Ohio, but James said no. There was nothing there but cold winters and high utility bills. Sandra Martinez, the assistant manager of the Cottonwood Apartments, said Huberty was a quiet man who seemed like he was always mad at somebody. He was always frowning. A neighbor says that one night, somebody tried to steal Huberty's motorcycle and that Huberty fired a shot at them. And one night, he even threatened Etna and the kids with a gun. But apparently, Etna didn't take him seriously. He saw him not as mentally deranged, but as isolated and lonely. She also saw that he was becoming increasingly obsessed with a coming war, believing World War III was right around the corner, depressed and feeling hopeless. Huberty found a kind of bitter joy in the idea that the whole world was going to end anyway. With his deep fascination with guns and gun magazines, violence and destruction, warfare and survivalist movements, it was easy for him to daydream about a nuclear Armageddon. His mental health began to deteriorate. One day, he walked up to a police car in San Cedro and claimed to be 
a war criminal. The police interviewed and released him. In San Cedro, he was just about as far west as a person could go. And riding his motorcycle over to the Pacific Ocean at Imperial Beach, as he took the doing, it had to be just too clear to him, looking out over the edge of the world, that he'd gone as far as he possibly could. There was no more land left. Huberty applied for a job as a security guard with the Bernstein Security Service in Chula Vista. But company secretary Marianne Sides said he didn't get hired here. In fact, there was a big no, about four inches high, written on his application by the people who interviewed him. I understand he had an attitude problem. He did, finally, find a job with another security company guarding a condominium complex. But he was fired just a few weeks later, on July 10th. By this stage, though, he seems to have been past caring, having found, as Etna says, nothing but frustration and broken dreams in San Diego. He tells Etna that she should have let him kill himself. And I think we should state here that mass shooting, again, in the context that we're discussing, is actually a form of suicide, a type of suicide. In a new study by Jillian Peterson, PhD, an associate professor of criminology and criminal justice at Hamling University, she was able to interview surviving mass shooters. And they all said they either went in planning to be killed by the police or planning on killing themselves. None of them planned on coming out alive. And the number of perpetrators who were discovered to have documented evidence of suicide attempts in the study was staggering. She believes that one of the most effective ways to combat the rise in mass shootings would be to invest in more suicide prevention. And case in point, on Tuesday, the 17th of July, Huberty tried to make an appointment at a mental health clinic. He told Aetna the clinic was going to call him back and stationed himself by the phone. But the call never came. And eventually he got fed up of waiting and told Aetna he was going to ride to Imperial Beach on his motorcycle. Apparently, the receptionist had misspelled his name on the intake form as Schuberty. And since he had not claimed that there was an immediate emergency, and his demeanor had sounded calm, his call was not returned. The next morning, Wednesday, July 18th, the Huberties drove up Interstate 5 to San Diego to traffic court in Claremont Mesa. Commissioner Duncan Worth says James was very calm in traffic court, and actually, after explaining he was new in town from Ohio and didn't realize the traffic codes, talked the commissioner into rescinding the $75 fine. Wow. He must have been some kind of crazy smooth talker. You know, you ever try to talk one of those guys out of some stupid parking ticket? Not not successfully. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) After lunch at a McDonald's in Claremont, on a whim, they decided to hit the San Diego Zoo. I'm not much of a zoo guy, personally. They kind of depress me. But um, I have to admit, San Diego has a really, really nice zoo. They've uh, actually reintroduced over 30 endangered species back into the wild. Kind of the opposite of a lot of zoos. Anyway, 
the side note there. <laughs> Wandering <laughs> over the hilly terrain, through the gorilla forest, gazing at the polar bears, elephants, and giraffes, James turned to his wife and cryptically replied, society had their chance. They drove back to their apartment where Huberty put on camouflage pants and a black t-shirt telling Edna he was going out. When she asked where he was going, he said, going hunting humans. Edna had grown used to him acting strangely and saying bizarre things, and so paid it no mind as she laid down in the bedroom and closed her eyes for an afternoon nap after a busy day. As his wife lay in their bedroom to take a nap, Huberty gathered ammunition, filling a canvas bag. He tucked his 9mm Browning pistol with the 14-shot clip into his belt, slung his long-barreled Uzi carbine over his shoulder, and grabbed his Winchester 12-gauge pump-action shotgun. Then he made his way to his battered old Mercury Marquis, its bumper sticker reading, I'm not deaf, I'm just ignoring you, and headed for McDonald's, a block away on San Cedro Boulevard. A neighbor who spotted Huberty as he left his apartment loaded with firearms phoned the police, but the dispatcher gave the reporting officers the wrong address. Mm. Huberty entered the packed McDonald's where upwards of 50 people were eating and working. 16-year-old employee John Arnold, standing by the service counter, glanced up and found himself looking straight down the barrel of the shotgun. Another employee called out to him, Hey, that guy's going to shoot you. James Huberty squeezed the trigger to the shotgun and nothing happened. I think this dipshit had the safety on or a shell jammed something. And John Arnold, well, he just thought the whole thing was some kind of sick joke. Sighed, walked away. He avoided death by a hair's width. It's nuts. Oh, so here's this guy in his camouflage pants and Uzi slung over one shoulder, a pistol in his belt, fiddling around with his shotgun in the middle of a crowded restaurant during the busiest time of day. <laughs> Some customers see him and take off, you know, just get the hell right out of there. But others just think he's some kind of whack job or maybe a gun nut exercising his Second Amendment rights. And they just shrug and keep eating their Big Macs. Others apparently even thought he could be an entertainer or a Rambo impersonator, even though this guy definitely looks nothing like Sylvester Stallone. Neva Kane, the restaurant manager, didn't think it was funny. A gorgeous woman with long, feathered hair like Farrah Fawcett. She was just back from her honeymoon and not in the mood for playing games. She angrily strode to James as he fumbled with his shotgun before firing a round into the ceiling. He then turned the submachine gun towards Neva and fired point blank into her face. She fell to the ground, twitching in death throes as chaos erupted. The 1984 San Cedro massacre had now begun. Huberty screamed for everyone to get down on the floor, calling them filthy swine. He then yelled, I'm going to kill you all. I killed thousands in Vietnam, and I want more. Huberty had not only never been to Vietnam, he had never served in the armed forces at all. People still debate over 
whether he was suffering some kind of psychotic break and actually believed himself to be a Vietnam veteran, that this line could actually point to mental illness or whether he was just a lying creep. Any thoughts? That does seem like a really bizarre statement to make, even in this context. But like you said before, Etna's used to him making bizarre statements, isn't she? So that's in character for him. While James Huberty's wife made attempts to convince him to go to counseling, and James himself attempted to seek help shortly before this point, we still have no formal psychological history that would help us paint a picture of what might be going on here. So I find myself looking to behavioral observations made by those closest to him. And there weren't a lot of people that were. So Etna, his wife, had reportedly stated that before James lost his welding job, he'd been hearing voices. A history of auditory hallucinations could point to a recurrence of psychosis here. It's a symptom he's evidently had before. But we also know that Huberty was obsessed with both firearms and conspiracy theories. Particularly conspiracies involving the U.S. government or the threat of war. So maybe a combination of those factors is coming up for him here. Maybe he's saying this all for shock value, trying to take command of the situation and intimidate. Maybe he's trying to make excuses for that ridiculous outfit. <laughs> it's impossible for us to know now. Uh, well, you left out what I consider the most possible of clinical reasons. Oh, yeah? What's that? Acute assholeism. <laughs> he's, a, he's an asshole. He's a total fucking asshole. Back in the day, lying about having been in Vietnam was a very common form of assholeism. You could often tell an asshole right away by their lying about having been in Vietnam. I think that there were some studies done on this, but I couldn't find them in my research. But yeah, um, I'm going with asshole on this one. I'm not inclined to argue with you. <laughs> All right. Cool. Victor Rivera, his wife Maria, and their two children had just found a table near the door when the first shotgun blast echoed throughout the restaurant. While his wife clutched their children in her arms, Victor tried to reason with the gunman, pleading with him not to hurt any more people. And in answer, Huberty turned the Uzi on him and began firing. As Victor lay on the floor of the McDonald's, howling in pain, Huberty stood above him, shouting for him to shut up as he let loose on him with a barrage of bullets. The coroner would later count 14 bullet holes in his body. John Arnold, you remember him who had miraculously not been shot because the gun malfunctioned and he'd simply walked away thinking it was some sick joke. He was nicked by a shotgun pellet in the opening volley. And as plate glass windows shattered and bodies fell around him. Arnold dived under a seat. Recalling that harrowing day, he says, I just pushed my head against the bricks. I scrunched into a ball. I tried not to breathe. I just thought, oh, please don't come over here. He would remain in that position, thinking that thought for the next 75 minutes. Huberty yells for everyone to be quiet, for the children to stop crying. And when the children continue to cry and scream, he begins to kill them, first turning to a group of women and children with an infant. 
He fires his Uzi on nine-year-old's Claudia Perez, fatally hitting her in the stomach, cheek, thigh, hip, leg, chest, back, armpit, and head, and hits her 15-year-old sister, Amelda, in the hand. He kills 19-year-old Maria Silva with a single gunshot to the chest. Jackie Reyes, a pregnant mother, shields her 8-month-old baby and her 11-year-old niece, Penna, with her body. In a burst of gunfire from his Uzi, James Huberty hits Jackie 48 times. Her niece later saying she could feel her aunt's body jerking and bucking. He then shoots Penna in the leg with his shotgun. Eight-month-old Carlos Reyes sits up beside the bloody corpse of his mother and begins wailing. Huberty yells at the infant to be quiet before pulling out his pistol and shooting the baby square in the back, killing the tiny child instantly. Oh, man. You know, I've seen the crime scene photos. and It's, I don't know, it's absolutely devastating. Uh, there's a video that the cops made going through afterwards, and it's, it's just so brutal. You see this woman laying there. She tried to shield her baby, and they're both dead in this big pool of blood. It's, oh. Guadalupe Del Rio had come across the border from Tijuana for a late lunch with two friends, Aris Delcy Vallejas, Vargas, and Gloria Ramirez Soto. They were about to leave the McDonald's when Huberty strode in. At the first blast, the women slid under the table. Del Rio and Ramirez with their heads pressed against the wall and their legs drawn up to their chests. Vargas as close as she could get behind them. Huberty directed a stream of fire at them. Ramirez was miraculously unhurt. And Del Rio was hit several times, but not seriously wounded. But a single nine millimeter slug tore into the back of Vargas's head and ripped into her brain. She would die the next day. The only person Huberty killed who lived long enough to make it to the hospital. Huberty shot randomly, letting out deafening streams of bullets across the restaurant, which ricocheted off the stainless steel. When one gun was empty, he moved on to another, his big bag of ammunition on the counter. The first emergency call from a McDonald's employee was logged at 4 p.m., quickly followed by three more. One reporting a child had been shot and was currently in the post office across the street. And this is what the police dispatcher would say in the original call. At 4.04, the first of the police, four patrol units and a supervisor, were dispatched. Initially, law enforcement and emergency crews responded to the McDonald's located at the U.S. international border with Tijuana, then changed directions after they learned that the shooting was actually taking place at the McDonald's next to the post office, about two miles away. 
Lawrence vs. Lewis, a 62-year-old truck driver, was having his coffee break. He had worked for the same local company for almost 40 years and was due to retire at the end of the week. Huberty shot him dead before heading into the back of the building. Alicia Garcia and Margarita Padilla were in the back kitchen cooking french fries when Huberty appeared. In a great act of heroism, Margarita grabbed Alicia and pushed her down the hall and out of the way, saving her life before being hit with a barrage of gunfire and crumbling to the ground, dead. Alicia ran for the emergency exit. It was locked. Can you believe this bullshit? (laughs) Evidently, fearing employees would steal food, the managers had locked the back emergency exit. Jesus. So she ran downstairs to a closet, taking two of her colleagues along the way. Other employees also ran to the closet. After encountering the locked emergency exit, eventually there were six of them and a baby. The group huddled together nervously while upstairs, the firing continued. Bullets are ricocheting. People are screaming. The French fry machines are beeping because the fries need to come out and alarms start going off. James finds a portable radio, sets it on the counter, puts on some music, and turns up the volume. Three 11-year-old boys, Joshua Coleman, Omar Hernandez, and David Flores, best friends looking to get some ice cream and soda, rode their bikes over to the west side of the McDonald's parking lot. As the boys approached the building, They were puzzled to hear someone across the street screaming at them, warning them not to go to the McDonald's. They paused for a moment before shotgun blasts threw them off their bikes. They fell in a bloody tangle of bodies and bikes. David Flores was killed instantly. Joshua was hit in the chest and wounded and lay there watching as his best friend Omar, drenched in blood, called out for his mother, then began to retch and vomit before convulsing and going still as he succumbed to the wounds and died. There's footage of uh, Omar's mom showing up at the scene hysterical, just screaming, and it is uh, utterly heartbreaking to watch. Joshua was bleeding and in great pain, his lung collapsing and struggling to breathe. But he lay still and quiet beside his dead friends, hoping that whoever had shot him would think that he was dead too. Raphael Meza, an employee of an all-night grocery chain just up the street, watched as the boys were shot and ran to them trying desperately to help, but he was unable to reach them when a barrage of bullets erupted around him and he had to duck for cover. He says, I hid behind a truck. There were bullets flying everywhere. 
Everybody was screaming and running around. They were just running for their lives. You could see people getting shot and falling down, just like in a shooting gallery that you couldn't get out of, just like in the movies. Joshua survived with wounds in his stomach, buttocks, hands, and arms after watching both his best friends, Omar and David, die of massive injuries to their heads and body. An elderly married couple, Miguel, Victoria, and Alicia were approaching the door to get some hamburgers when Huberty shot Alicia in the face with his shotgun. She fell to the ground in a heap, and her loyal husband knelt beside her in horror, trying desperately to wipe the blood from her face and screaming at Huberty, God damn it, you killed her. Miguel continued to scream curses at Huberty, Huberty yelling angrily back as he walked up, leveled the shotgun at him, and shot him point blank. Miguel crumbled beside his dead wife. Huberty went back inside and leapt over the counter to check the kitchen and found Guillermo Flores on the floor talking to police. With Flores were Alex Vasquez and Albert Leos, the grillmen, and three crying young women who worked the counter. Vasquez remembered that Huberty looked quite surprised. Oh, he observed calmly, there's more. And then, in a flash of rage, said, You're trying to hide from me, you bastards? He raised the Uzi as one of the women screamed in Spanish, Don't kill me. Don't kill me. He fired on them from close range, shooting two of the girls in the head and killing them instantly. A third, wounded, tried to crawl away, as did 16-year-old Albert Leos. Huberty pumped more bullets into the girl, killing her. But when he trained his gun on Albert to finish him off, he found himself with an empty magazine. So he calmly returned to the service counter where his bag of ammunition sat and began reloading. Albert Leos, terrified that the gunman would return, tried to get to his feet, but was unable. He had been shot four times in the left arm, the right arm, the right leg, and the abdomen. Desperately, he dragged and pulled himself across the kitchen floor, heading for the steps to the basement closet with Alicia Garcia. At the door to the closet, he quietly begged to be let in, and they opened the door and brought the seriously wounded young man in with them. Trying to remain quiet, Albert found a bit of cloth to bite into and muffle his anguished moans as he used his shoelaces as tourniquets on his arm and leg. Miguel Rosario was the first police officer on the scene at 4.07. He initially thought it was for a wounded child at the post office which is how the dispatcher had described the situation. He pulled into the post office and parked, 
And as he exited the vehicle, he noticed a commotion directly next door at the McDonald's. People ducking behind cars, hiding. When suddenly the windscreen and emergency lights of his vehicle were shattered in a barrage of gunfire. Miguel dove behind a pickup truck as bullets rained down about him. He alerted radio dispatch that a major siege was in progress and requested a SWAT team calling out over the radio, taking heavy fire, taking heavy fire, request code 10. And another voice then said, Omega code 10. Maricela Felix, her husband, Estefolo, and their four-month-old baby girl, Carla, were driving north to San Diego, but got hungry and decided to pull into the San Cedro McDonald's for a quick bite to eat. Maricela wanted tacos, but Estolfo wanted McDonald's, so she had let him decide. They pulled into the McDonald's parking lot, and seeing all the shattered glass, Estolfo assumed there was construction going on. As they stepped from their car, Huberty opened fire on them with both the Uzi and the shotgun. Maricela was hit in the face with the shotgun, a pellet knocking her eye out. Four-month-old baby Carla, cradled in her mother's arms, was hit several times in the neck, chest, and abdomen. Astolfo, also wounded, grabbed the baby, and in the commotion, the couple ran in opposite directions. In a panic, wounded and bleeding, Estolfo passed the wounded baby to a complete stranger, who rushed it to police officer Steve Pernicano, who just arrived on the scene. Together, this Good Samaritan stranger and this police officer held the infant's wounds, the officer driving with one hand and administering first aid with the other as they all rushed to the hospital. With all the carnage and bedlam, there were heroes that day. Because baby Carla was the first victim to arrive at the hospital before the flood of gunshot victims that would later come, she was able to get immediate care, which is why it's believed she lived. You know, I saw the pictures of that baby in the hospital, and she was just so beautiful and big and healthy looking. I could tell You could tell she was going to be a survivor. And today, Carla is a strong, beautiful woman. Unfortunately, her mother lost an eye, complete use of her left hand, and suffers from daily physical and emotional pain. But she says she's just so, so happy that her daughter is alive. And she says she's found it in her heart to not hate the man who shot her. Uh, she's doing better than me because I, I kind of hate this guy a lot. Yeah, wow. <laughs> At 4.08, a paramedic unit rushing to the scene is halted by gunfire. Meanwhile, San Diego Fire Department dispatcher alerts life flight emergency crews at UCSD Medical Center to prepare to dispatch helicopters. Victor Rivera, a maintenance man, had taken his wife and daughter to McDonald's. It was the little girl's favorite restaurant. Victor was shot dead. His wife and their four-year-old daughter were both badly wounded. 
And out on the nearby eight-lane freeway, Interstate 5, a motorist was shot and wounded. This fucking asshole is firing at cars on the freeway. Can you imagine, you know, just driving down the highway, minding your own business? Out of nowhere, a bullet comes whipping through and hits you? Fucking crazy, man. And outside, the police closed off six blocks of San Cedro Boulevard, and the highway patrol shut down Interstate 5. At 429, SWAT Commander Jerry Sanders, at a workshop he was facilitating in Mission Valley, is notified of shootings after his pager initially failed to work. Others claim this was more of a party than a workshop, with a lot of drinking going on, and that Sanders had turned off his beeper purposely so that he wouldn't be bothered during the festivities. Sanders strongly denies this. At 4.35, a SWAT sniper team arrives and relieves officers at north side of the restaurant. And by 4.45, all officers around the McDonald's have been relieved by SWAT team members. At 4.46, two witnesses escape through the back door of the restaurant and are debriefed. And at 4.48, a more accurate description of Huberty is broadcast to the snipers, as well as confirmation that the gunman is alone and armed with multiple weapons. Yeah, you know, they didn't know what the fuck was going on. Like, they didn't know how many gunmen there were, whether there was hostages. They didn't know if it was a robbery that had just somehow gone terribly wrong. But this case would change how active shooter situations were handled in San Diego. By 4.55 p.m., the SWAT team had assembled and taken up positions at the post office to the south of the restaurant, at a donut shop to the north, and on San Cedro Boulevard to the east. It was a difficult situation for the snipers. Not only were the McDonald's windows tinted, but many of them were now patterned with dense white spider's webs from the bullet holes, giving appalling visibility. Also, from a tactical point of view, Huberty was occupying high ground. The restaurant was elevated three feet with a retaining wall running around three sides. At 5.02, a second SWAT sniper team gets in place on the post office roof. And at 5.04, a sniper team on the north side of the building asks if green light, orders to shoot to kill, is authorized. But at 5.05, SWAT Commander Sanders, still en route to the scene in his car, and the freeway is just gridlocked at this point, he hears on the radio that a green light is given to sharpshooters, and he rescinds the order. He felt he had no choice but to order a red light until he could ascertain the situation. Finally, at 5.13, SWAT Commander Sanders is on scene and feels sufficiently clear on the position to proceed. And Sanders changed the red light condition to green. Any sharpshooter seeing a clear shot at their man could now take it. While Huberty is no longer shooting people in the restaurant, but concentrating his effort on police outside. And as more and more of the glass panes fall from the window frames, he becomes more exposed. SWAT sniper Charles Foster 
and his spotter, Barry Bennett, had taken up a position on the roof of the post office. There was a shot from the restaurant, and another pane of glass exploded outwards, and Bennett caught a brief glimpse of the gunman. The description matched the one he had just overheard on his walkie-talkie. All right, mister, now we can do it, he said. Chuck Foster gave his 308 caliber sniper rifle one final check. At 5.17, four minutes after receiving the green light, Foster spotted the gunman again. He was sitting on the counter with his feet dangling down, reloading. But Foster could only see his legs, couldn't get the kill shot. Then, Huberty hopped off the counter and walked up to the window with his Uzi. His head was obscured, but his chest was exposed. Foster tells Bennett, there he is, right in the window. It's him. Foster rose up with his rifle and found Huberty in his sights. He drew in a breath, held it, and gently squeezed the trigger. The single bullet crashed into Huberty's chest, tearing through his heart, shattering his spinal column, and Huberty dropped to the floor, dead. The scene that greeted SWAT Commander Jerry Sanders and his men would haunt them forever. It was like an awful still life, Sanders told the Times later. One of the little bodies I picked up was just about the same age as my daughter. I went through nightmares. So did a lot of the other guys. You can never put that vision out of your mind. Stalin infamously once said that a single death is tragedy and a million just a statistic. But we want to hammer home to you just how tragic this event was by reading each victim's name. Elsa Orboa Firo, 19. Neva Denise Kane, 22. Michelle Carncross, 18. Maria Elena Colmenero Silva, 19. David Flores Delgado, 11. Gloria Lopez Gonzalez, 23. Omar Alonzo Hernandez, 11. Blythe Reagan Herrera, 31. Mateo Herrera, 11. Paulina Aquino Lopez, 21. Margarita Padilla, 18. Claudia Perez, 9. Jose Ruben Perez, 19. Carlos Reyes, 8 months. Jackie Lynn Wright Reyes, 18. Victor Maximilian Rivera, 25. Aristelsi Vargas, 31. Hugo Luis Vasquez, 45. Lawrence Gus Chris Lewis, 62. Ada Victoria, 69. Miguel Victoria Uloa, 74. Due to the number of victims, local funeral homes had to use the San Cedro Civic Center to hold all the wakes. The local parish, Mount Carmel Church, 
had to have back-to-back funeral masses to accommodate all the dead. On September 26, 1984, McDonald's tore down the restaurant where the massacre occurred and gave the property to the city who used the location for an education center as part of Southwestern Community College. In front of the school is a memorial to the victims, 21 granite pillars ranging in height from one to six feet. In 1986, Etna Huberty, the shooter's widow, sued McDonald's and Babcock and Wilcox, James Huberty's longtime former employer, for $7.88 million, claiming that the massacre was triggered by a combined mixture of McDonald's food and work around poisonous metals. Yeah, she alleged that monosodium glutamate in the food combined with the high levels of lead and cadmium in Hubert's body induced delusions and uncontrollable rage. While an autopsy did reveal high levels of the metals, most likely built up from fumes inhaled during 14 years of welding, she lost the suit. You know, obviously, a An estimated 69 million people a day eat at McDonald's. How many of them go on violent rampages and shooting sprees? I'm hoping not that many. Autopsy results also revealed there were no drugs and no alcohol in his system at the time of the killings. Etna Huberty's young daughters were taunted at school, and the family moved twice within a year of the shootings. Remember uh, Albert Leos? He was behind the counter and had the shit shot out of him before managing to crawl down the steps to the closet where other employees were hiding. In order to face his fears, he became a police officer. He says, after I survived the massacre and I was recovering, I had sleeping problems, nightmares. And the nightmares were that I couldn't save anyone inside the McDonald's. I couldn't save the babies, the women, the children. It took me a long time to little by little work through that. One day on patrol as a police officer, he found a burning vehicle beside the road and investigating, thinking it was an abandoned car, realized someone was inside. He rushed into the flames smashed out the window, and pulled the man out, saving his life. The man had fallen asleep at the wheel after working an 18-hour day as a painter and flipped the vehicle, which ignited it. You know, so uh, being inspired to become a police officer by that terrible, tragic day, it did end up saving this guy's life and uh, shows a glimmer of hope and a forlorn world. Unfortunately, the 1984 San Cedro McDonald's massacre would go on to inspire other killings. Sylvia Segrist spent a lot of time hanging out at the local mall in Springfield, Pennsylvania. She'd been diagnosed with schizophrenia and shoppers and employees alike knew her for her harassment of customers and bizarre rants. 
The usual subject of Sylvia's rants was James Huberty and how good his rampage had been. Mm. On the uh, afternoon before Halloween in 1985, Sylvia arrived at Springfield Mall dressed like a commando. She got out of her Datsun carrying a Ruger Mini 14 and immediately began firing at a woman using an ATM machine. For four minutes, Sylvia lived out her commando fantasy, killing three, including a two-year-old girl and injuring seven. Jean Laffer, a shopper, thought that the shootings were nothing worse than a very offensive pre-mischief night prank as Sylvia raised her semi-automatic carbine at him. John disarmed Sylvia of what he believed to be a toy gun. That's just crazy. He walked over to her and just took the gun away, I, evidently telling her she was a very bad girl, I'm, I'm assuming. Right, and Sylvia just sat there like a petulant teenager as Lawfer retrieved a security guard. While being escorted from the mall into police custody, she said, What happened in California was good. It should happen again. No, it wasn't, and it shouldn't. Mm. Sylvia was charged with three counts of murder and seven counts of attempted murder and found guilty, but insane. She's incarcerated at a state correctional facility in Muncie, Pennsylvania. Unlike James, Sylvia had a history of delusions and had been institutionalized multiple times. In Belton, Texas, George Hennard considered James Huberty to be his role model. Dude, any mm. better role models? Wow, kicking back, drinking beer and smoking joints with his bandmates, he would recount the McDonald's massacre play by play as if it were like a football game. At one point, he even made a pilgrimage to 484 San Cedro Boulevard. Among the items police would catalog as evidence at his house would be a VHS tape of a documentary about Huberty. On October 16th, 1991, George smashed his blue 1987 Ford Ranger pickup truck through the floor-to-ceiling windows of the Luby's Cafeteria in Killeen, Texas, then followed in his role model's footsteps. With a Ruger P89 and a Glock 17, George murdered 23 diners and injured 20 others during the afternoon rush on the Take Your Boss to Lunch Day. The shooting lasted only six minutes before police managed to corner him in the bathroom alcove where he committed suicide by shooting himself in the head. With two more fatalities than in the San Cedro McDonald's massacre, the Luby's massacre took the rank of first place in America's mass shooting history death count. It would hold that spot until Son Hui Cho killed 32 at Virginia Tech University in 2007. Then, on October 1st, 2017, 
from his 32nd floor suite in the Mandalay Bay Hotel, Stephen Paddock, a 64-year-old man from Mesquite, Nevada, would fire over a thousand bullets into the crowd attending the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival on the Las Vegas Strip, killing 60 people and wounding at least 413. He too would commit suicide with a gunshot to the head. Sarah, maybe you can give us a little psychological breakdown of what you think's going on here. Nina Certfolio, MD, clinical assistant professor at Iken School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York, conducted a study entitled A Retrospective Observational Study of Psychosocial Determinants and Psychiatric Diagnoses of Mass Shooters in the United States. This was published by the Psychodynamic Psychiatry Journal in 2022, as well as online with open access. We can post a link in our show notes for those who wish to read it in its entirety. Essentially, Certfolio and her team combed through clinical background information on 35 surviving mass shooters between the years 1982 and 2019. The research team utilized two standard instruments, which were the DSM-5 and the Sheehan Mini Standardized Scale, to determine whether these individuals could be diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder. The study found that 87.5% of the 35 surviving shooters studied had been incorrectly diagnosed or incorrectly treated for a psychiatric illness. Illnesses found among those studied included schizophrenia, mood disorders, delusional disorder, substance-related disorders, and post-traumatic stress disorder. In addition, most of the shooters had a history of isolation and had limited social support from their friends, family, and peers. Research showed that being marginalized or isolated by peers increased individual vulnerability to symptoms of psychiatric illness as well as susceptibility to internalizing radical and violent ideas that these individuals encountered online. Many shooters reported being bullied or ostracized, feeling increasingly worthless and desperate. And uh, in the study that Professor Jillian Peterson did that uh, we mentioned earlier, she interviewed several would-be mass shooters who actually changed their minds, including would-be school shooters who were in the school with a gun in their backpack, getting ready to go on a shooting rampage. And every time, it was a human connection that stopped them. Somebody helping them with a small act of kindness and giving them a little bit of hope. She talks about a man named Aaron Stark. He had planned on doing a mass shooting. He had it all worked out. And the day before he was going to do it, he went to a friend's house. The mom of this friend had baked a pie, especially for Aaron, knowing he was coming over 
eating this pie, Aaron decided not to carry out the attack. So, hey, all you fellow freaks and dear listeners, be kind. Make someone a pie. You never know. One small act of kindness could stop a massacre. Aw. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember what Matthew said. Be kind. Bake someone a pie. It could save lives. And if someone doesn't bake you a pie, go to therapy. (laughs) And hey, we want to hear from you. I got a case you think we should cover. Did we get something wrong? Or do you just want to say hi? Send us an email at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. That's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. Catch you next time. <laughs>